There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Look. If you had one shot or one opportunity... Seize everything you ever wanted One moment Did you capture it? Just let it slip Yo His palms are sweaty Knees weak, arms are heavy There's vomit on his sweater already Mom's spaghetti, he's nervous But on the surface he looks calm and ready To drop palms But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down The whole crowd goes so loud He opens his mouth but the words won't come out He's choking how? Everybody's choking now The clock's run out Time's up Hello, my name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 17 of the No Popcorn Music Podcast. Film and music podcast, I should say. It is, of course, the big brother of the No Encore Music Podcast. Myself and David Higgins are here today, along with Norma Howard. But here, of course, is a bit of a state of mind these days, as we get used to our remote settings. So all three of us are in our various different kind of home studios, trying our very, very best, as we will, as we join together to discuss... Eight Mile. David Higgins, why are we doing this film? That's a good question. You chose it. Um, I believe it was because you were had a, had a conversation with a, a work colleague about it and um, you said you'd never seen it. Um, I have also never seen it, so it kind of seemed like something that we should do. Yeah, the hope was to get my now former work colleague, Rudy Kinsler, on for this episode, but now that we can't do that, because Rudy knows quite a lot about the battle rap scene, and he's a big Eminem fan from back in the day, and he was delighted at the opportunity that has since been taken away from him by the coronavirus. So, alas, he's not here. But Norma Howard, we welcome you back onto the show. How is it all going? Good, yeah. I've been watching a hell of a lot of films, so... <laughs> 
Um, I've seen Eight Mile before, but not since I was like maybe 15. Yeah, I would have been like, I liked Eminem. He's good, <laughs> isn't he? He's good. Um, yeah, well, I saw him when out. I was very young and I don't think I fully understood the sort of societal um, things that were happening in the film. I was just like, oh, cool, Eminem in a film. He has a big sex scene. Um, so <laughs> it was nice to look back at it at the age of 27 and take away more than just uh, Brittany Murphy being very attractive. Well, it was my first time. As you say, Norma, we've all been kind of snowed in now. We've all been watching a lot of movies. Uh, who wants to go first in terms of what they've been watching? Because I've got a huge list. How about you, Higgins? Um, surprisingly, when, when, when all of this started, I, I kind of had in my head that I was going to be devouring movies, like, you know, taking down three a day because there's quite literally nothing else to do. But I'm finding, and I don't want to get too... Charlie Brooker on it, but that um, I'm finding it hard to look at screens because I'm expecting like a Pavlovian response of getting bad news from it. So I've watched the movies, but I haven't been anywhere near as uh, kind of hadn't had as as much of a like ferocious appetite for them as I thought I would. But um, the one thing or one of the things that I have been watching, and it, it started one evening where I just randomly popped on. Uh, the Client, uh, adaptation of uh, a John Grisham novel from the 90s. So I, I popped that on. And then over the next kind of coming week, I found myself watching every movie uh, adaptation <laughs> of the Grisham Oove. <laughs> Not out of uh, enjoyment, because most of them are any good, <laughs> but it was, I just, I found, I found the idea of them really fascinating. Like, we, we live in a time now of the, uh, you know, everything has to be a cinematic universe. Like, and, you know, you, you look at Marvel and, like, everyone is in these movies. But when you look at the Grisham movies in the 90s, like, the casts in them are bonkers. They, they are having the, you know, the biggest stars. Um, they, were, they were managing to get some of the greatest directors of the 70s, like Francis Ford Coppola, Robert Altman made one, um, uh, Alan Pakula made one, and so I was kind of just fascinated to watch them. Um, they, they, they weren't, they, they don't really hold up all that well. One thing that I will say about them, and it, um, for, for all the calibre that there is in these movies, in, in who has made them, the best ones are made by Joel Schumacher. Um, Joel Schumacher seems to understand um, the, the kind of the airport novel that is kind of what Grisham does, like, you know, they're very standard. They're very, very digestible. I remember reading them a lot when I was, I was younger, but while, while, uh, Pakula particularly and, um, Sidney Pollock as well, tried to bring like a gravitas to it. Schumacher just kind of goes over the top. Um, particularly in the client is a, a masterwork of, Dutch angles. Um, there's, there's, there's a, there's a scene, and is it's just the a client. Tom Cruise is that that one? The client. No. The, the client is um, Susan Sarandon, Tommy Lee Jones, Brad Renfro, where two young boys kind of witness a a mob lawyer um, trying to take his own life, and then the mob kind of come after him, hilariously led by uh, Anthony LaPaglia as Barry the Blade Moldano, some of the most incredible um, 
attire you will see in a movie. He's wearing like a fishnet tank top at one stage, and he's supposed to be like the mob, the mob don. Um, but just to get back to Schumacher, so one of the scenes is it's it's incredible. It's a very simple um, kind of exposition scene where um, that one of the young boys who'd seen this this murder and this suicide has kind of gone into a state of shock, and it's just a hospital scene. It's just a doctor delivering a small bit of information. The doctor, because these movies are stacked, it's played by William H. Macy in just like a two-scener. Um, and it's it's in a hospital room, but Joel Schumacher has lit this thing like it's the Maltese Falcon. It's incredible. It's just like <laughs> bursts of dramatic lighting piercing in through the through the window. And it's just like, he, he kind of gets it. Um, he seemed like he was laying the groundwork visually for his Batman and Robin movie with this with the client. So um, that's that's been me. I seem to recall a scene where I think it's Kim Coates of Sons of Anarchy fame. I think he threatens Brad Renfro in a room that is lit so red it's like something out of fucking dry. Yeah, you, you get it's the big on primary colors, and then he chases him into a morgue. It, like it's not even a morgue. I think it's like a. Um, it's like a lecture hall within a morgue, something like that would have been in the Nick, but it's like electric blue. <laughs> so a lot of fun. You're thinking of uh, the firm, Norma, I believe, the Tom Cruise one. Did you? Is that it? I actually. Yeah, the firm is what is, is Tom Cruise and and Big Gene Hackman. I think. Did you keep it just to courtroom dramas, Higgs, or did you go all in on some of the later era Grisham? Non. I didn't go for. Was it? Is it Surviving Christmas or Four Christmases that he he also wrote? <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> I didn't go there. I've kept it. I've kept it courtroom. I still actually have to watch The Chamber. I, you mentioned Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman in the firm. Gene Hackman couldn't get enough of these movies. He's in three of them. <laughs> He's in. He, he he comes back for the the chamber, um, which is apparently the worst one. Um, it it had a it had a bad kind of production where Ron Howard left and Brad Pitt left. So and then Brad Pitt was replaced by Chris O'Donnell. <laughs> so that kind of explains a lot of it. But yeah, Hackman Hackman couldn't get enough of them, and then. Anthony Anthony Hield Chilton from the the early uh, Hopkins Hannibal movies is in like maybe three maybe four of them. Um, just they have ridiculous cast. Like they they are all there's at least like ten people that you know quite well in every single one of them. I just find them quite fascinating, even though they're not any good. Norma, what have you been passing the time with? So I was discussing this previously with the two of you guys. Obviously, I've watched Tiger King. Neither of you have. That's totally fine. It's a good watch. I stand by it. Um, I watched a film last night. So I'd never seen, actually, a few days ago, I'd never seen Scarface. And I was like, now's a, now's a pretty good time to watch Scarface and to just like get into it. And I was like, obviously incredible film. Amazing. And then uh, I watched a film last night. You'll be so proud. We were like on a bit of an Al Pacino buzz. So I watched Heat oh. for the first time. <laughs> for the first time. For the first time, I know. Oh my I'd God. Like, I think uh, Dahi, who I watched it with, had seen it like years ago and like half remembered it. And I was like, come on, we're just going to sit down for the three, three hours it, like, and watch the director's cut of Heat, which <laughs> I don't know how different that is to the theatrical one, but it was a hell of a film. It's um, unbelievable. So, yeah. Wow. I'm so jealous. It's a good watch. Um, yeah, like I knew what the ending was because I had heard you talk about it so much. <laughs> it, 
fairness, yeah, another week goes by. <laughs> so I know. I was just like, I feel like I know this film. Um, but it like, regardless of whether you know the ending, obviously it's like an incredible journey to get down there. It was very tense. Song at the end is magnificent. Whose side were you on, if I may ask? I was on Al Pacino's side. Interesting. I was just kind of like, I felt very bad for Edie. Are we, can I, are we giving away spoilers? Oh yeah, the film's like, what, 20 fucking five years old at this stage? (laughs) (laughs) Also, because Natalie Portman, I didn't realise she was in it. And I was like, go on, Natalie Portman. Um, She's very good for some, she's like maybe 16 in it? Possibly even younger, yeah. I mean, I, you, yeah. Well, we'll we'll talk about Heat at length another day. It is, it is maybe a perfect film. I think for all of its excesses. There is a there is a point where Al Pacino is like, I think why I was so behind him. There's just certain lines in films that only Al Pacino can get away with. Like, I just can't picture anybody else pulling off a delivery in the way he does it. I don't know whether it's like the angry, crazy eyes, but it's just like incredible how he gets away with saying certain things. There's a line in Heat where he's talking about to Hank Azaria's character about a woman's ass. <laughs> and the way he says it, I was just like, I put, what? what is like, nobody else could say that and not make it f- insanely weird. But for some reason, I'm like, yeah, Al Pacino would just go into a room and talk about someone's head up a woman's ass. He did an interview there a few years ago in which he kind of like, he confirmed that uh, the character of Vincent Hanna was on coke, you know? And everyone was like, yeah, I'll sure, the character, fair enough. Um, <laughs> it is a classic. I'm desperate to see in the cinema again, having seen it with Higgins, of course. Um, as for my own list, I've been, I have been taking down quite a few movies. I've been taking down two a night on the weekends on occasion. Myself and oh, my, wow. myself and my intrepid re- journalist, reporter, housemate Richard Chambers have been trying to, you know, I guess decompress from what's going on by just diving into movies. So I won't give you massive reviews here, but among the ones I've been watching are Al Pacino and Speeches. You talk about that. I watched Any Given Sunday. Still amazing. Still basically the most cocaine uh, on celluloid film you're ever going to see. Just a ludicrous, ludicrous piece of work that is so all over the place, but somehow totally works. A Few Good Men, another great speech in that movie. I watched that the other night. Um, And again, one of those films where it's all about the build, it's all about where you get to. It's kind of rough around the edges, but like for all of Aaron Sorkin's bollocks, and there's so much bollocks in this movie, especially when Kevin Pollock's character asks Demi Moore, why does she like the defendants that are on trial? And she's like, because they stand on a wall and they say nothing's going to hurt you tonight. (laughs) And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, no one talks like this. Uh, It was still an absolute joy, as was Denzel Washington eating all of the scenery in Training Day. Just a supremely watchable, scuzzy, disgusting film right there. The Matrix, I went back and watched the original, which makes me want to watch Reloaded, but I will not be watching Revolutions again. Uh, Game Night is worth it if you want an hour and 40 minute decent comedy with Jesse Plemons being absolutely amazing in every single scene that he's in. And also, I've been burning through the last couple of seasons of Mr. Robot. I'm almost finished. So if you want to feel really depressed and have an existential crisis about the world on top of what's happening, definitely tune back into Mr. Robot. That's pretty much my, my roundup, guys. So there you go. Oh, and wrestling. Lots of wrestling. Wrestling has been good. (laughs) Am I the only one or has anybody else watched The Gentleman, this Guy Ritchie film? Higgins, have you? I have also watched The Gentleman, yes. Okay, let's talk about it. I had a, I think, I think I already mentioned it to you. I had a weird, unintended double bill. Like I, I sometimes like to, you know, curate a double bill. I think I mentioned last time of, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit and The Big Sleep. Was it? I think The Big Sleep. And that was a nice, 
kind of themed double bill, but sometimes you just watch two movies in a row and they're a double bill. So I watched Guy Ritchie's The Gentleman and then the uh, the Chris Benoit documentary, which I think you also watched. I did, yeah. Not back to back, though. <laughs> Thankfully. <laughs> Okay, so this is Guy Ritchie's most recent film. It became available on Video On Demand or whatever early because of what's going on in the world. And what a treat it was. Um, I thought this was repulsive and terrible and boring and woeful. And as much as I enjoyed Colin Farrell Irishing himself up, I feel like Guy Ritchie tossed this thing off in a fucking weekend. Yeah, 100%. Um, I think I'd agree with you. Colin Farrell was the only fun element to it. Hugh Grant kind of seemed at the beginning like okay, he's going to be okay, but then the fact that they used him as like a, a framing structure for it and we kept cutting back to him, it's just like I needed a little less of Hugh Grant, even though his performance to begin with was interesting. Uh, yeah, Farrell was a lot of fun. You're right, it's it's gross. All the characters are repulsive. The fact that the movie opens with a quite a literal someone dropping the needle and, and the needle <laughs> drop not even being that good... Um, it recycled cans, vitamin C, which is just like, we need to put a moratorium on using that in movies, even though I love it in Inherent Vice. Um, yeah, really, really forgettable. As you said, like, it's kind of Guy Ritchie by numbers. Um, seems like the kind of movie that he wouldn't have got to made had he not have had some sort of bigger box office success recently. I was actually thinking about when I saw it, is he probably the worst Hollywood director at the moment? Maybe. I mean, like, where's the identity? Think of his big, um, his big movies. So, like, granted, I haven't seen Aladdin, but like those Sherlock Holmes movies. I know you hated the um, the King Arthur, the the Man from Uncle was like so boring, even though it had like a good cast of quite charming, good looking people. Um, I can't think of any time he stepped up to the plate and kind of been like, okay, I really enjoyed that. Didn't Aladdin do very well? Was it like in the billions it made? One billion dollars and it's getting a sequel. One billion. Like, it's incredible that you can just be making shitty films and still (laughs) just raking in money. The Gentleman is, I guess, just to kind of put a capper on it. I mean, like, it's really proud of itself. Like, it's really happy with itself. It's so smug. It's trying to make all this meta commentary about filmmaking as well. And like, you know, here's what the audience want. It's just a retread of like former glories and not done very well. And none of the characters are likable. Um, Charlie Hunnam's fine, I suppose. I have a bit of a soft spot for him. I don't think he's anywhere near as bad as people say he is. McConaughey is coasting. It's just kind of gross and it has really kind of annoying messages in it. It's racist as fuck. Uh, it's gross. Yeah, didn't like it one bit. And everyone's like, it's fun. I'm like, no, no, it's terrible. Anyway, that's the wrap up. And I guess we'll move now into the film that we're here to discuss. So here's a little taster of Eight Mile. Sorry, mama. I never meant to hurt you. You're asking me out on a date, Tim Smith, Jr. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I am. Tell me why you left. Tell me and I'll leave you alone. Sorry, mama. From Curtis Hansen, the director of LA Confidential, and producer Brian Grazer. Eminem, Brittany Murphy, Mackay Pfeiffer, and Kim Basinger. Eight Mile. Uh, yeah, so uh, Eight Mile is uh, directed by Curtis Hansen, who was a director who had like a lot of uh, success in the in the 90s uh, with The Hand That Rocked the Cradle, um, The River Wild, and then most successfully with LA Confidential. Um, 
So wasn't be the kind of the, the the person that you would think of to make an adaptation um, of what is essentially uh, Eminem's life, but um, he was picked by the producer Brian Glazer. Uh, Brian Glazer, um, basically because of that, he he had been looking at potentially bringing in more directors, but kind of more of an eye for that who'd been working in hip hop videos. But he kind of wanted to bring someone. Um, in who had a completely different aesthetic and wasn't used to that world and would bring something something new to it. Um, so the script is written by Scott Silver, who has gone on to write Oscar-nominated Joker. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't worked a whole lot since 8 Mile uh, until until he came around uh, with Joker, but... Um, yeah, he, he has basically retreaded parts of... Uh, Eminem's early life um, and the people in and around it. Norma, take me back to 2002 as you're emerging from the cinema on this one. And did you think it was amazing? So I didn't see it in the cinema. 2002, I was nine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw it at like, when I was 15, I saw it literally at a friend's party where it just seemed to be everyone was like, well, we put on eight miles because like that's what what the kids did. Um, and I think it like it did amazingly at the box office. It was like incredible, it had a budget of like 41 million, but made, I think it's grossed worldwide like 242 million dollars. Um, I think it had like one of the highest opening weekends of a pop star debut or like a musician debut ever um, behind like Beyonce in Austin Powers. Um, Yeah, I just think everyone thought it was cool. It was like Eminem was massive at that time. And I think most people would have gone to see it as like, a, oh, Eminem's in a film class. I'm going to go see this. He's going to do some raps. This will be amazing. Um, and then I feel like a lot of people feel like there was a lot more to it then rather than just like, here's a big name in a rap film. Isn't that cool? Like there's a, there's clearly a big effort to make sure he doesn't come across as Eminem in a film. I think that's like yeah, the, evident from the, the timing of it is genuine. That is interesting. He was fucking massive around this time. He was huge. And this was kind of the peak, I suppose, that kind of early run of the first couple of albums into 2002, 2003 territory. I remember myself, um, I remember it coming out and I just wasn't that interested. I had gone through my Eminem phase, I guess. And I also, by the time I worked in Extra Vision, which would have been from 2003, late 2003 onwards, I remember 8 Mile, so it would have been out on DVD at this point by over a year or whatever, uh, there or thereabouts. And it was still renting like crazy. It would still rent like throughout my entire run of working there from late 2003 to kind of early 2007. Even when it went down to like, you know, the older DVDs where it cost nothing to rent or you could like get three of them for the week for a fiver or whatever the fuck it was. It was always, always, always renting. We were down to like maybe like three or four copies and they'd always be out. Like the people in Drada seemed to have a big affinity for Eminem. And I don't know, I just wasn't drawn to it. I was just like, I just felt that it looked really boring, that it looked really grey and uninteresting and not charming. And I just didn't really care about the story. I didn't really care about him too much. I never, like I liked him for a while in that way that you did when he came along, but I was never a big fucking Eminem disciple. And with regards to the film, I don't know, something about just like even the colour palette and just whatever, it just didn't, it never appealed to me and I've gone this long. And when 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 I went to watch this the other day, I found myself sitting there being like, why is it taking me this long? And my kind of, my kind of crux of it was, 
I was sitting there being like, okay, fine, cool. I'm, I'm ready to be won over by this thing. And in the end, my fears were confirmed. I think this, this is a really boring film. I think it kind of sucks. And it's very, like, by the numbers, it's very archetypical. A lot of the characters from Kim Basinger to Michael Shannon on down are just one note, one dimensional. We'll get into Eminem's performance, but Higgins, as an overall narrative, where are you on this one? Um, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you, um... Much like you, I think I had my moment in the sun with Eminem, and it was a very, very brief one. I think it was only really, um, I remember quite liking this, what was his breakout record, his second record, the Slim Shady LP. I remember having that on CD and quite liking it, but by the time the Marshall Mathers LP came out, I'd already kind of moved on. I'd probably been, you know, basically caught in the wave of new metal, I would imagine, at that, at that stage. Um, so I was the same as you. I, I kind of pushed against the idea of going to see this film and I think that there was even in a time you know pre Twitter pre big full hype machine I felt like I was being told that this movie was great a lot and um, yeah I just kind of didn't didn't get to it but um, in terms of narratively this film like it's it's structured essentially like a Rocky film like you know Rocky one it's it's um, you know it's not really rags to riches, like much like Rocky, but it is. It is kind of the, the ascension of someone to to a point um, in a you know very rundown industrial uh, city in America. Um, so it kind of uses that structure, and that's like a perfectly fine structure to use for a movie. Like if more movies were like Rocky, give me the Rocky of whatever. Um, I think I've talked about my love of. The Rocky of Dance, which is Staying Alive, directed by Sylvester Stallone, starring John Travolta. <laughs> so that's that's totally fine. That's that's a that's a wordy and an enjoyable um, way to tell the story. But with this, it just kind of meanders. Um, there's no real build up, um, and the 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 payoff doesn't really feel like a payoff. I don't know if I feel like uh, Rabbit has really got any success at the end of this, and. This movie really feels like a bunch of quite well-filmed um, and quite interesting rap battles um, that have been kind of stitched together with this, as you said, like, you know, very paper-thin char- characterization, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, blue-collar um, America, where, you know, th- th- there's not much backstory to Michael Shannon's Greg character, but let's just give him bad teeth that are really yellow, and that's that's a that's a kind of a quick way to getting you know this is who this person is. Um, um, you know, Kim Basinger is like it's a very broad. I just I'm a, I'm a drunk, and you know she's really going for it, but yeah, I this this doesn't really do it for me. Norma, like, is that are we being too harsh? And also, crucially, I suppose for you, like the first time you saw it versus this recent rewatch, has much changed for you? Um, I definitely like, like when you're younger, you're watching it, you're just like, oh, Eminem, and it's cool, and you're like, you're seeing all these rap battles, and you're really, really invested in that. Whereas this time, I was trying to be like, what was the actual storyline? What was the like? what was the actual eight mile, <laughs> which is something that went massively over my head the first time because it was like, I thought eight mile was just the place. So eight mile is the eight mile road, which is the division between like white upper class suburbia suburbia in Detroit and 
the lower working class, predominantly like black community, which is what like Eminem's character, Jimmy Bunny Rabbit. What's his second name? Jimmy Bunny Rabbit. I think it's just Smith, is it? Smith, yeah. Um, I got so put off by this because Jimmy Rabbit is the lead character in The Commitments. <laughs> and I was like sitting there for a couple of minutes going, does he call Jimmy Rabbit? Um, like, I think it's hard because obviously it's semi-autobiographical and they've made some specific points to make sure that it's not identical to Eminem's life in order to try and break that up a little bit. Um, it absolutely speeds through the story. Like, I don't know whether that's to appeal to like a younger audience because that's who it would have been aimed at. It like builds through a lot of like major points and like the scenes just like pound one into another. Um, Eminem's in all of them. Um, and uh, there was times where I found it quite hard to digest big plot points because the music was so loud in some of the scenes, I missed dialogue. Um, and I feel like when you were younger, you probably would have just been like, oh, I don't know what they said there. But there's like points where like, at one point there's a scene where they're at a house party and it's eventually the house that they choose to burn down because there'd been like a sexual crime committed there. And uh, they reveal the real name of his rap rival, um, which is Clarence. And I nearly missed that because the music was just up so high and I was just like, they're mumbling and I have no idea what's going on. And like there were points where I thought it looked really nice, but like you kind of just have to be there for the like to see how cool the raps are, I think, ultimately. You you said about the that it that it speeds through the plot is and I think is the issue that does this movie take place basically over a week? It's a week. I think it kind of feels like Friday night. You know, he he ha- you have that opening scene um, where he's at the rap battle, and it's like a, a re- at first I was like, okay, I'm in on this because it's a great opening scene. He's like trying to get himself um, psyched up in the toilets. He's listening to Shook Ones uh, by Mob Deep, and I was like, okay, this is this is something like the, I can feel like an energy here. There's a buzz, and then he. He goes out on stage and he has stage fright. Thankfully, this movie can be so literally on the nose. I thought someone was going to say rabbit in the headlights at him. Thankfully, they did not. Um, but but the rest of the movie just kind of seems to be from a Friday to a Friday where, you know, they're both bookended by um, rap battles. You know, he goes from being terrible one week to good the next week. And then what what are we supposed to take from that? So everything in between is just like, it's so compacted. Like, it's just... There's no time for anything to breathe at all. So, yeah, like, I completely agree. There's points where, like, he, like, I wasn't sure where there was meant to centre around a specific week in his life where it's like something changed. And he went from being this kind of like, oh, I just like kind of piss around at the weekends and I do this to being like the responsible guy who's going to, you know, get his life together, actually go out on his own. Like, the big thing seems to be like, if you want to do something, you got to do it for yourself. And like, that's the huge thing. It's like, he's not going to rely on someone to make his demos. He's going to do it himself. He's going to look after his sister, who's quite young. um, And he's just going to like take control of things. And it just seems to have a rapid turnaround. Because there's a point where he's at work and asking for extra shifts. And the guy's like, 
you're terrible at your job. You're not getting extra shifts. And then like two days later, he's like, you've been really pulling up your socks. You can have those extra shifts. And the last <laughs> time before that, you'd seen him in work. He'd been getting the ride. So it's just like, <laughs> and when did he have this big turnaround? It was just, it just seemed to be happening way too fast. I was okay with that because I wouldn't want a three hour version of this movie. But yeah, there's a lot to pack in. Okay, so we'll get to Brittany Murphy because that is its own section for sure. And Eminem getting the ride. But as Norman notes, Eminem is in literally every scene of this film, which is a hell of a task for any actor, let alone one who isn't all that, you know, well-trained or has a huge background in it or is used to doing it at all. Of course, Eminem is a showman. He's very theatrical. He's very charismatic, whether you like him or not. I think we can agree on that one. Norma, do you think he managed to hold the screen? Like, is he compelling enough? Is he good on a basic level? Yeah, I think so. I think, like, ultimately, when I sat back from the film, I was like, was this film good? I was like, I want to say, like, for a lot of reasons, I don't think it's a very good film. But I do think Eminem pulls it through. I think he does, like, I think you can see he's working hard and he's putting in a lot of the dedication to the job. And if you watch any interviews with, like, uh, Brian Glazer, who's one of the producers, and um, Curtis Hansen. May he rest in Curtis peace, no longer with us. And they both like said his work ethic was incredible. And I do think that shows. And I think like, obviously it's coming from an extremely personal place as well. That like, he's lived this. He, like a lot of the incidents that happen, happen to him. Um, I do think he does a really, really good job. And I also think it's like, it's worth noting that uh, he wrote all the music. Um, I think he had a co-writer on some of the raps, but uh more or less like wrote all of it and like between takes was writing the raps as they were happening. I think he's a pretty good actor. I think he pulls it off. I think he's worthwhile watching. Higgins, where is he on the, the Daniel Day-Lewis scale <laughs> for you? Well, I, I, I appreciate his, um, his, his work ethic and the fact that they were saying that he was, he was like, he'd be doing a scene and then he'd go off into the booth and he'd, he'd you know, spit a rhyme and he was constantly building everything. Like he is, in one sense, he's not the director, he's not the writer, but he is one of the auteurs of this film. I kind of wish that in all the time that he was spending, you know, recording stuff on the side that maybe he was working with an acting coach. Um, he clearly excels in the rap battles. I mean, that's, that's a given. He has a remarkable presence, even though, I, you know, I don't, I don't care for his style of rap really but um he he has a 100 percent has a presence um i think he falls down massively when he's um asked to project vulnerability um i kind of feel like his idea of vulnerability is just kind of standing still much like he does in his his first scene where he's supposedly choking on stage um that just kind of seems to be the go-to for um what he does in the rest of uh the movie I think the scenes with Michael Shannon are kind of laughable. Um, you know, the, the, you have you have an actor like Michael Shannon who's like one of the great presences, and even at a young young age, this is this is Michael Shannon. Maybe ten years before people actually really w- knew Michael Shannon, and you know, I'll borrow a a a, a wrestling, you know. Metaphor for you, Dave. It's like it's like one of the great wrestlers. It's like a Dean Malenko carrying someone in 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 some some guy to it, you know, who whoever they bring in, you know. Um, I'm trying to think of the last time they brought 
Tyson Fury. It's like someone carrying Tyson Fury in a wrestling match and kind of making <laughs> them look good. I could never, yeah, um, I could never, I could never really buy those scenes. Um, I could also never buy Rabbit beating this guy up. Um, Michael Shannon would destroy this yes. man, no, and the beating would be it. biblical. <laughs> man, that, that bit in particular, I was just like, that. That's when it felt the most vanity project to me is when Eminem is like wailing on Michael Shannon on the ground and like knocking his teeth out. Basically, I was like, don't think so, pal. <laughs> Can't see this just happening. Like, I so when obviously like the biggest thing about going back to it at the age of twenty-seven was that when Michael Shannon comes out of the trailer, I was like, that is what the. F- fuck it's like it's like yeah, obviously when I was younger I didn't know who he was so it didn't register with me really and I was like what like what is Michael Shannon doing looking well but like so so odd that he would be cast in that role I don't know I just strange yeah working actor I mean uh, always looking well in fairness now that man <laughs> you know serious serious uh, 1930s terrifying actor presence about him uh to double down on the wrestling analogy and i'm glad that higgins uh paved the way for me on this one i i would agree that the idea of the vulnerability thing in eminem's kind of one note nature the more the film goes on uh, there's a professional wrestler by the name of johnny gargano who is technically amazing he's absolutely incredible he's one of the greatest baby faces in the game and he does this sell job though when he's like been put through the ringer he's taken an awful lot of punishment where he just looks catatonic and dazed and the more he does it the more you're like ah this is such an act it's such an actor's trick and the more you see it the less effective it is and that's kind of the way it was for me with Eminem because in the early scenes he really really had me I was like fuck he's good I was like he's actually really good he's natural you know I mean I know he's playing a version of his life story so it should come to him no problem but you know it didn't feel too forced it felt like he was making all the right choices but then you realise that he kind of runs out of those tricks he runs out of those choices the more it goes on and by the time you get to the ending and this isn't the longest film of all time ever you're just like well I've seen it you know I mean I appreciate the commitment as you say apparently he lost a bunch of weight I think he lost a couple of stone and also dyed his hair black I think Curtis Hansen directed him to do that because he was like I don't want people to be confused by the Eminem that they've bought the records of. They want, I want to see this underdog. And he carries it off when he carries it off. But generally, I mean, for someone who you're spending time with for the entire film, he's not very likable. And I didn't really care, I think, is the is the main issue. I found that uh, one of my favourite bits where I did actually quite like him, because there was times where I was like, oh, this guy is just so like, like I feel like I wasn't sure what age he was. At times, because I was just like, are you like 20 and you're still really hot headed and you're just finding this difficult and you're trying to learn how to like take control of your life was the um, the he goes to work and it's like a food truck scene and he exhibit is there and he's doing like a rap battle with another lady. And um, he kind of makes a few little jokes and he does a rap and it does like it does come across quite well. And I feel like he's there's like moments where you're like, oh, that's like that's actually quite sweet. And I'm kind of like I did still feel like I was rooting for him. And maybe that's the Let's real have a way listen to that. Uh, yeah, we'll have a listen to the future battle show. Why not? I'm getting so sick and tired of fucking with this steel. They only give us 30 minutes to eat lunch and chill. My body aching just to get a buck. I'm sick of eating this shit off this fucking lunch truck. <laughs> Nasty-ass food. I'm in a nasty-ass mood. I should have called in sick. Shit, I had something to do. I can't believe that I'm hearing all this raving and raining from Vanessa up here at the New Detroit Stampin'. You need to get your food and take your ass back to work. Right. You're dreaming if you think them corny-ass raps will work. <laughs> Look at y'all standing out here freezing like dumb fucks. 
rapping and waiting for food off this raggedy lunch truck. Who want what? Who pumped up to get rolled up? I spit venom in every direction. Soak some up. Look at this fat ass nigga. <laughs> Sloppy sucker. You an ugly motherfucker. Your pop shoulda wore rubber. Stop rhyming. Keep your day job, Vanessa. Next time, leave that bullshit home on a dresser. Um, yeah, I think this, this, as I said, like um, the, the the rap battle scenes are are very good. This one in particular is good. It's it's you know it's the lowest stakes. Um, it's quite funny, and they obviously exhibit is a is a good heel in this sense for, for this for this scene. And uh, the woman who's kind of battling against him is good. Like they. It clearly, and one of the things I will say about this, like they've cast the movie quite well. They, uh, the casting director, they, they went to Detroit, um, and this movie is lived in because of that. It's not, you know, it's not one of these LA movies where they're, you know, you're trying to to make somewhere look run down. The thing about Detroit is, is that Detroit has never really recovered since, you know, post GM closing down and Michigan in general kind of being left behind. It's kind of it kind of reminds me a little bit of. Um, the wire where um you know they they filmed in baltimore um and a lot of the things that they were doing was kind of like based on stuff that david simon had reported on in the past but things haven't really changed like the city still kind of looks the same the, the forgotten parts of the city still look the same and um that exists here but in terms of that scene um yeah no it's 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 fun and um i think he's really good um it does uh, lead to probably another big scene is is that is this the point where we start talking about uh alex and bunny's relationship or b rabbit's relationship yeah, so this is this is Brittany murphy Brittany murphy plays a character by the name of alex alex letourneau i believe now i mean i i don't know too much here in terms of like what the intention was but this to me came across as your classic bunch of lads writing this kind of I, I wouldn't even use the word Manic Pixie Dream Girl because it predates that for sure in terms of the indie sensibilities and the kind of cutesy twee stuff here. But it really felt like, like, you know, that film fucking Weird Science where the guys create a woman like this felt like that. It felt like here's this sex object doll like uh, for Eminem who is like a trophy. She's like something to get. She's like, um, like she's always pouting. She's always dressed to the nines in this kind of sexy way. And uh, like, her entire character is lust. That's all she is to me. Norma, am I way off on this one, or um, did it come no, across that way? No, you're not at all, Dave. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I would say the the female characters in this film uh, are no good at all. Like um, Brittany Murphy is a very good act. Like was a very good actress. Is obviously deceased now. Like the first shot you get of her are her legs, and then repeatedly throughout the film are just shots of her legs I'd like uh, like I don't know whether Curtis Hansen was just like get her legs because that will express to the audience how much she fancies her I don't know I don't exactly know what that was she just seems to get kind of tossed around between lads and she has this uh, aspirations of being a model I think she does a really good job and I do actually think her and Eminem have nice chemistry for like the handful of scenes that they're actually in together it just seems like at the very end when he's doing his like takedown battles uh, rap battles and she shows up after he kind of like there's this weird thing where he's like they're like oh was that not your girl again you've known her like a week I don't know when everyone decided they were like a thing and she sleeps with someone else and he loses his mind um, and beats up a guy and then he gets beaten up by that guy's mates and there's a, a back and forth 
at, by the end of the film, I was like, what is her relevance still? I don't like, I don't know really what she was for him because I think the idea is that she kind of sparks him to like do better in work and he's got like this thing to live for kind of thing. Um, so yeah, all the stuff is like with Brittany Murphy is weirdly loaded, even though I think she has a very good job with the small amounts she has. And I do find like some of the dialogue is better in her scenes than it is in other parts of the films. Um, Kim Basinger let me down quite a bit. I would make the argument that, that Kim Basinger is wildly overrated. But anyway, we're here to talk about Brittany Murphy. Yeah. Higgins, where are you at? I was just going to say that I am, uh, you know, I am I am shocked that the, the, the screenwriter of Joker has written some, you know, poorly <laughs> written female characters. Um, yes. I was Silver. expecting so much from you, Scott Silver. Um, yeah, I think Brittany Murphy is good in this movie. <clears throat> but as you mentioned, I don't know what this relationship that they have is. Um, they share maybe five or six scenes that I can think of. Like there's the scene where they first meet and he kind of, he, he tries to follow her in when she's looking for her brother. And then they meet outside a, in a car park and they have like a brief chat. And then like the next scene is she sees him doing a rap battle. They have, you know, one second, like three three sentences of dialogue where he's just like, oh, are you going to ask me out? And she's like, are you going to take me somewhere? And she's like, take me somewhere right now. And you're like thinking, oh, we'll bring her for a nice meal. It's like, no, I'm going to bring you to the back of this, you know, industrial plant and <laughs> have sex with you. <laughs> um, yeah, what's wrong with that, man? It's a great day. It's, it's got to, like, their sex scene, which is quite long, is probably, the length of their sex scene if you added up all their moments of dialogue together, I think the sex scene might outweigh it. That's how like little there is in this relationship. I wasn't that sex scene was straying into fucking Channel Five territory at times. I was like, Jesus! I remember <laughs> like, that being this a bit of a thing when I was younger, where everyone was like, "Oh, the sex scene," kind of thing, and it's just like, "What?" <laughs> also, this film is eighteens, isn't it? Is it 18? They took advantage of that, for sure. <laughs> but no, she's never really... She never feels like a person. She just feels like an object. And yeah, as you say, like, I mean, like, granted, yeah, you could make the argument, you can make the counter-argument that, you know, she's sexually independent and she she's in control all the time, fair enough. But like, she doesn't... She just feels like property. She doesn't feel like a real person. And then even like, it has such a trope of like, and now she's leaving because she's taught him a lesson, but she's still there at the end cheering him on. And it's just like... You're not a real person. Like, this is not a real character at any point. I guess, I mean, it's not so problematic that it, that it becomes, like, a major issue, but it is it is poor writing and it is very reductive and one-dimensional. He, you could argue that Eminem has a better relationship with Mackay Pfeiffer, his best friend, Future. Uh, here's them hanging out and having the crack I together. Save up some money and get the hell out of here. This shit is ridiculous. Well, Jimmy moved in with his mother Cause he ain't got no place to go And now I'm right back in the gutter <laughs> With a garbage bag that's full of clothes Buzz it, buzz it Cause you live at home in a trailer What the hell you gonna do? Yeah! <laughs> Cause I live at home in the trailer Mama, I'm coming home to you Okay, so yeah, repurposing of a, of a classic there As heard in different films such as Con Air 
Um, okay, Mackay Pfeiffer, right. Not the best actor in the world is fine here. He's playing, I think, a version of Eminem's friend Proof of D12, who is also no longer with us. Uh, should we start with the wig? It's not a great wig. It's not. Like, you, you've said before that you don't tend to notice the wig. So the fact that you've even, you've twigged that Mackay Pfeiffer hasn't suddenly, <laughs> you know, grown enormous dreads. You, you've, you've picked up on his bad wig. 100%. It's quite distracting. Um, I don't believe proof, <laughs> you know, looks like that. That's what they wanted to go for. Um, kind of unnecessary. Yeah, apparently it was like down to the wire whether whether they would use it or not because they're like, no, no, we found one that kind of worked. Mackay Pfeiffer wasn't a fan anyway. It's fine. It's your standard friendship in this situation. He's the MC of the local club and he's willing Eminem on throughout the movie. It's it's just your standard kind of like, you know, best friend type thing. They have the occasional fight. If it hits all the tropes, it's grand. He's fine, I suppose. Like like he's he's charming enough, but it's Mackay Pfeiffer at the end of the day. Like like, you know, like what what do you want to do? He's also one hundred percent tipping the scales in every single bloody rap battle that Eminem does. Because there's the first you know, at the end where he, where he where he eventually takes down Papa Duck and he has it's like the first round, or maybe the second round, but the guy gets him really, really good. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, that was fine. And then, like, you know, Rabbit comes in and does does one. That's that's fine. It's good. It's it's maybe no better. And he looks like somebody just scored a fifty at the NBA dunk contest. Like, it's just calm down. <laughs> just like a little bit of impartiality here, you know, future. Yeah, he's a home referee for sure. Um, I mean, okay, so like, it's it's kind it kind of runs out of road. Do we think the music is good, Norma? What do you reckon? I think it's good. I think it's like, it's probably what is carrying the film through and probably what most people actually really like it for. And that's what is appealing to a lot of people of it. Like the, like we were saying, like the storyline kind of like runs out of gas, but like the music is great. And the like, I think it's like at an hour and five minutes in is when he starts to write Lose Yourself. And you get the little like teaser of him sort of like just he's just like sitting in his trailer, loads of sheets of paper in front of him. And he's like looking over at his sister, Lily, um, and he's sort of teasing out what it's going to sound like. And it's like, oh, this is cool. This is exciting. This is really interesting. And um, a lot of the rap battles are really good. And it does really feel like the music is what's saving this person's life. And it is like the best element of the film. The actually just from like no encore when you were doing the top five end credit songs, like lose yourself at the end of eight mile. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> well, I will. I will say this. Like, was no, did nobody else feel cheated that it's not in the actual film? I assumed all these years. It I assumed so. that's what he would unleash. And it doesn't happen. Now, granted, I did find myself being like, oh, the lads only have 45 seconds here for each kind of battle rap. And then later on, Mackay Pfeiffer's like, you get a minute and a half now. And I'm like, ah, still like, you know, not enough time to play the whole song, but you know, we'll get it for sure. And it never happens. I just felt like, where the fuck is Lose Yourself? It's used fine as a beginning and an ending, but I don't know. Maybe that was just me coming at it from a very basic point of view. I was like, he's going to say it now. He's going to say the words and then doesn't. But to be fair... The rap that he does come out with at the end is genuinely very impressive. And the narrative of that about how, you know, he, he anticipates that his, his opponent in the final will use all of the, you know, things against him that he's from. So he just throws that back at him. And Anthony Mackie in his first ever film, by the way, is it? Yeah, his first film. Yeah. I could not believe Anthony Mackie was in this movie. What the fuck? Um, As Clarence. He's like the, the, 
Clarence, yeah, Papa Doc. He's the final boss, essentially. And Eminem's rap is so good that Anthony Mackie has no response for it. We'll hear a little taster of that now. Never try to judge me, dude. You don't know what the fuck I've been through. But I know something about you. You went to Cranbrook. That's a private school. What's the matter, dog? You embarrassed? This guy's a gangster. His real name is Clarence. And Clarence lives at home with both parents. And Clarence's parents have a real good marriage. This guy don't want to battle. He shook. Cause ain't no such things as that play crooks. He's scared to death. He's scared to look at his fucking yearbook. Fuck Cranbrook. Fuck a beat, I go a cappella. Fuck a Papa Doc, fuck a clock, fuck a trailer, fuck everybody. Fuck y'all if you doubt me. I'm a piece of fucking white trash, I say it proudly. And fuck this battle, I don't wanna win, I'm outie. Here, tell these people something they don't know about me. And so there it is, yeah, he wins. Everyone goes crazy. He gets offered to take over the club, says, no, I'm going to go back to work. And yeah, Higgins, you were saying that you think it's a bit of an anticlimax of an ending. But I guess that's life, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like, what what are we supposed to take from it? He goes back to, to work. Or is, the, is the insinuation that he has written Lose Yourself and Lose Yourself is going to get him out of get him out of poverty, get him out of the factory, get him out of the trailer park? Um, yeah, it just, it seems like, a very, very kind of s- small ending for where it could have went. Also, I kind of feel like Papa Doc is out a rematch <laughs> as well. Like it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't seem really definitive. It's just like the stakes in this movie are so, so, so low. Um, yeah. You asked the question, why did Curtis Hansen make this? Are you any closer to answering that question? There was rumours that Danny Boyle was up for it. Apparently Quentin Tarantino expressed an interest, which I don't believe. I feel like the Quentin Tarantino thing in particular is, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of producer bullshit, much the way like um, the the president of a football club is like, oh, we, we're, we're in talks for someone. And it's like, you can, of course, try and, you know, buy Lionel Messi, but, you know... And in theory, you've had talks. A talk existed, but the talk might have been very one-sided. And I kind of feel like the idea of Quentin Tarantino directing this is that. Um, Danny Boyle might have been interesting. Apparently, he had a different idea of what they wanted to do. Um, I, yeah, I, I don't know what drew uh, Curtis Hansen to this much. Like, I don't know what drew Jim Sheridan to get Richard Die trying. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure what... Because Curtis Hansen, is, his movies are very, like, they're very white and they're very, very middle class. Like, LA Confidential is a middle class movie. Like, the movie he'd made before this, Wonder Boys, is, you know, about Ivy League students and, you know, professors. I think he does an okay job with it. I don't think that he is necessarily the issue. Um, as I mentioned, like, you, you kind of maybe had an aversion to how it looked. I think it looks quite nice. Um, and I think that's down to, like, shooting on location. Um, he was working with Rodrigo Prieto, who's now Scorsese's guy. Um, he kind of brought him from Mexico because he'd been, you know, mostly working with Inuritu. So it looks looks good. There's some really good locations in it. I think the that car park where they have the, the rap battle in, and it almost looks like a, like a run-down theatre, like the structure of it. Like, they found some really cool places. Um, so... Yeah, but I, I'm still kind of uh, uh, what Curtis Hansen necessarily wanted to say in this movie. Um, what anyone wanted to say in this movie, I don't really know. I guess final thoughts. So I've watched it for the first time ever. I don't think it's dreadful. I know I kind of started off kind of hot on it, but like it just didn't really 
draw me in too much. And by the end of it, I was like, yeah, fine, grand. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is that I will never watch this again. Norma, you've now seen it more than once. Would you watch this again <laughs> in another 15 years or whatever it is? I mean, I think if it was, if it came on TV, I wouldn't necessarily shut it off, but it's certainly not going to be part of like an arsenal of films that I will pull out on any given day to watch again. Like the motivation behind like why make a semi-autographical film with Eminem in it. Who knows? Why make anything? <laughs> I think like, like <laughs> I, f- I feel like the message they were trying to get across was the idea that it's like, if you want something in life, you have to take control of it and you have to go out and do it yourself. Because there's points where he's like, if I want this, I have to do it. I can't rely on anyone else to do it for me or to tell me, oh, I'll get you this thing or I'll do this. I have to take control of it um and like detroit is an interesting setting to put something like that in so like yeah i, st- I think I still think it's like it's worth a watch but maybe not maybe not several rewatches. higgins what kind of career did b rabbit have what is he doing today apart from being in quarantine of course <laughs> i don't know i think that i think that's kind of the thing that um i i kind of feel like he doesn't go anywhere. I don't know. I mean, you know it's kind of hard. There, there, there's there's a big difference between like being a good battle rapper and like you know Eminem's obviously a great producer. And it's like, does he find that? Does he find that in Detroit? Does he go out to LA like Eminem does? Um, it's not really something I, I think about too much. Um, did you know actually that? Because um, Eminem hasn't really acted since. He's he's had a couple of cameos here and there. Did you know that he was originally supposed to be in Southpaw? That it was going to be kind of a sequel, wasn't that? Yeah, so Kurt Kurt Sutter, uh, he of Sons of Anarchy fame, wrote, wrote Southpaw that eventually ended up having uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in it as a boxer. And his idea, or apparently the idea for it was kind of Eminem's downfall. Um, you know, post-proof dying, Eminem had a lot of struggles and... He kind of was out of limelight for quite a while before he came back with was relapse in 2009. There was, there was a period where he, from someone who you couldn't turn away and not see, he was everywhere in the early 2000s. Um, and Kurt Sutter was like, I kind of was, you know, building around that idea. He wanted to bring Eminem in to act in it. Um, glad he didn't. Not that I think Southpaw's a very good movie, but... Well, I wanted to ask, is Southpaw worth me adding to my social distancing shortlist? No, I, I mean, I'm going to have to watch Phantom Thread, David. It's on the list. Is it? Watch that. Yes. <laughs> You've made my day by saying list. it's on the list. It's on the list. It's on the list. Okay. Uh, two Sons of Anarchy references in this podcast, by the way, which you might say is too, too many. Uh, that was 8 Mile. And up next, we're going to go back to the world of documentaries with this. The reality of getting back together is to see if we can put blood back into the veins of a very big pop band. Hey, Brosky. Family can be challenging, but we are brothers. We will find a way. I had like an epiphany. I was like, this is mentally difficult. I don't need to do this. Honestly, I'm absolutely knackered. We are behind schedule. It was a massive workload. We rub each other the wrong way. We need to fix this. That's right. That's Bross. After the screaming stops. An incredible documentary. And I encourage everybody listening to go and seek it out if you haven't already. I'm not sure when that episode will be, but hopefully soon if this one works out okay in terms of a production point of view. 
and a legitimately unbelievable documentary like up there in terms of metallica some kind of monster stakes for absolute surreal craziness and endless quotability and that's what we'll be doing next on no popcorn this was of course about eight mile thanks guys i really appreciate you both uh turning your respective domiciles into studio based you know we may not have made a battle rap classic here but i think we did our very very best so thank you david higgins it's been a pleasure thank you norma howard Thanks very much. And my name is Dave Hanratty. This has been No Popcorn. There will be no popcorn, and we'll be back soon with an amazing Bross documentary. For now, here's some more Eminem action for you. Bye bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. That's a waste of Gary Allen brings you his new studio album, Ruthless, featuring 13 brand new recordings, including the single Waste of a Whiskey Drink. Make it look so easy. Baby, it ain't even fair. New music from Gary Allen, Ruthless. Available everywhere now. Tell me how you can be so ruthless. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. 
Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified. So you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.